everyone. Welcome to session 14 in our study of Esther. Today we're going to be in Esther chapter 9, discussing verses 1 through 19. So the day designated for the destruction of the Jews has arrived. But remember, all was not lost because God provided a way around this terrible law. Last week we discussed that Esther and Mordecai persuaded the king to enact another law, giving the Jewish people authority to defend themselves against anyone who wanted to harm them, their families, or take their possessions. And now is the moment of truth. So let's read Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 in the CSB. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of the king's provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Eridai, and Vesatha. They killed these ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you, and whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law, and may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the order for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar and rested on the fourteenth, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the thirteenth and fourteenth days of the month. They rested on the fifteenth day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in the villages observe the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. So it says the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but the opposite happened. The NIV says the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand. Throughout the book of Esther, the author continually emphasizes the fact that in God's economy, what seems like impending doom actually results in salvation and that God is in the business of turning sadness and despair 
into joy and gladness. We must remember that when it looks like all is lost, like there's no way out, God always provides hope to those who trust him fully and completely and a way through the pain to joy and peace. My dad passed away back in 2015, and the only thing that I really wanted most of his possessions was his Bible. Not only for sentimental reasons, but like me, my dad liked to write in the margins as he studied, and and so I sometimes read his insights as I do my own study. And so on the inside cover of my dad's Bible, there's a quote that says, With God, difficulty is never defeat, and failure is never final. And that's what we're seeing in this passage. I mean, the Jewish people are going through tremendous difficulty. They're going to have to fight for their lives. And they've experienced failure. I mean, the whole reason they're in Persia as exiles was because of their rebellion against God. They turned away from God and followed the idolatrous ways of the pagan nations surrounding them. And God warned them over and over again to turn back to him or punishment would be necessary. So God allowed the nations of Babylon and Persia to overcome them. See 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. But God did not leave them in their defeat and failure. Because God says in 2 Chronicles 7:14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And I believe in Esther verse 4:16, that's exactly what the Jews did. They turned to, to God through prayer and fasting. And God does the same for us. God's intention is not for us to live lives of defeat and failure. He wants us to be strong, powerful overcomers. But that can only happen when we surrender ourselves willingly and completely to his lordship. Verse 2 says that not a single person could stand against the Jews. They overpowered those who hated them. And here we see the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 12, where God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that he would bless those who bless them and curse anyone who treated them with contempt. So even though the Jews mounted a defense and they had the king's support, there were still many in Persia who hated them and tried to kill them. You see, not everyone chooses to be on the right side of things. And unfortunately, those who choose the wrong side are headed for destruction. Joshua 24:15 is a poignant reminder. Choose this day whom you will serve. There were many who attacked the Jews, but not a single person could withstand them because fear of the Jews fell on every nationality. God placed fear in the hearts of their enemies, just as he had done before. In Deuteronomy 2.25, God told the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness that he would cause all the nations before them to fear and be in terror of them. All the people in Persia feared the people of God. Do you think people in our culture fear the Lord? I mean, I think respect for Christianity is dwindling to the point that people no longer respect or have reverence for God. I mean, I'm hoping that it's just a cultural phenomenon and it's not because Christians' devotion to the Lord has become so watered down and lackluster that the world sees no need to revere God because his own children don't. So with the Jews, when they received the news of their salvation, they acted on it. They acted like saved people. They outwardly rejoiced and celebrated because Mordecai's law protected them and saved them from destruction. 
They had been delivered, and so they let everyone know about it. And when it came time to fight for what they believed, defend their cause, they took up arms and did battle against those who wanted to destroy them. They didn't allow fear of a powerful enemy to stop them from defending the truth of the law that they had been given. Are we as confident as Christians in our cause? Are we as confident in God's law, his word, that we will defend it at all costs? Verse 3 continues by saying that all the officials of the provinces, the governors and satraps, all helped the Jews because they feared Mordecai. Now, back in chapter 2, Mordecai risked his life and exposed a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Then he risked his life again by refusing to bow before Haman, the enemy of God's people. When his people were set for destruction, he advised Esther to go before the king and plead for mercy. Then he gathered together all the Jews in Susa for a time of fasting and prayer. And here, he used his powerful position in the royal court to prompt the government officials in the provinces to help the Jews against their enemies. Mordecai was single-minded in his resolve to follow God's way. He was not swayed by fear or grief or now power and prestige. Satan tried many of the tools in his arsenal to defeat Mordecai. Fear, despair, grief, loss, separation, and now wealth, power, fame, and prestige. But none of it worked. Why? Well, perhaps Mordecai understood that even though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have power, divine power, to diminish strongholds. According to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. So have we made this same realization? I mean, do we realize that we have spiritual armor available to us that will protect us against the devil's schemes? Satan would like nothing more than for us to feel powerless, as if the world is too strong and too pervasive to ever overcome it. But we mustn't buy into that lie, because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So the Jews successfully defended themselves against their enemies. And notice, though, that they chose only to kill men, and they refused to take any of the plunder. They remained satisfied with God's provisions. They were not fighting for conquest or domination, but for their very survival. And in verses 6 through 10, it says that the Jews killed 500 of their enemies in the capital city of Susa, including Haman's 10 sons. Wiersbe says that it's remarkable that so many Persians would dare to attack the Jews right in the king's own city, where both Esther and Mordecai lived. And I'm sure that Haman's influence was pretty powerful there. And so perhaps they were, there were many in Susa who were still loyal to Haman, and so they sought revenge for his death. All of Haman's ten sons were involved in attacking the Jews in Susa, so perhaps they had organized their enemies to come against them. Clearly, the enemies in Susa was of, were of particular concern because Esther asked the king if he would grant the Jews another day to defend themselves. And she was right because the next day, 300 more men attacked them. Now, Esther also requested that the sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now, I realize this sounds like a pretty barbaric request, but Esther is not just being vindictive here. I mean, first of all, they had already been killed when they attacked the Jews. 
and it was a royal practice in Persia to make a public display of those who of, of their vanquished enemies and to deter others from continuing the slaughter. Esther knew that this would be an action that her enemies would relate to, and it would stem the tide of violence. Now, the Jews in the rest of the Persian provinces defended themselves, and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. This shows just how many people in Persia hated the Jews. But imagine how many would have come against them if God hadn't prompted Esther and Mordecai to write this new law, or if he hadn't placed fear of, of the Jews in the hearts of their enemies. God is always involved in the deliverance of his people. But God also engaged them in the deliverance. I mean, he could have placed fear in the hearts of all the people so that no one came against them. But instead, there were 75,000 in the provinces and 800 in the city of Susa that the Jews had to fight. Did God need their help to deliver them? Well, of course not. Well, then why did they have to fight at all? Well, think about it this way. God gives us the gift of salvation. It is a free gift, but it is not cheap. And in Ephesians 4.1, it tells us to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received. Well, what is that calling? Well, 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful. You are called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we have been called to salvation and we've been called to live like Christ. But that doesn't mean that we can earn it. I mean, Jesus did that. But that the salvation that we have received is of such great value we shouldn't take it for granted or take it lightly. I mean, what do we normally do when we've been given a gift of great value? Well, we often display the gift in some way so that others can see it. We may tell people about our precious gift. I mean, we're certainly going to take great care of it. I mean, we're not going to throw it in a box in the garage or toss it in the bottom of our closet. So what are we doing with our salvation? Are we treating Jesus' gift of salvation as the precious gift that it is? Do we share what Jesus has done for us with others? Are we taking care of our spiritual lives by growing in godly character, by spending time in prayer and Bible reading? Are we living lives that show the world that our salvation is a priceless gift? If we take it seriously by living lives of holiness, then that is when we truly learn that participating in what God is doing draws us closer to him. That's where we learn what we're capable of through his strength. I mean, if God just swooped in and removed every difficulty from our lives without us ever taking a part in the process, then we would never grow. We would remain helpless, immature, spiritual babies whose relationship with God would be based on getting us out of trouble, not one based on love. The passage closes with the feasting and celebration of the Jewish people because their disaster is over and they have been saved. Also in these verses, the author addresses the fact that the Jews continued to celebrate their deliverance long after this day was over. And we're going to discuss the festival of Purim next week. The text also says that the Jews celebrated this holiday on two different days. Now, most of the towns celebrated on the 14th day of the month Adar. But now the Jews in Susa celebrated on the 15th day of the month, because in the rural areas, the fighting stopped on the 13th. So they celebrated the next day on the 14th. But as you remember, the people in Susa, they were granted an extra day to fight. And so it ended on the 14th. Thus, they celebrated the next day on the 15th. 
But what's important to note here is the fact that immediately after their deliverance, they celebrated what God had done. Are we as quick to recognize and celebrate what God has done in our lives? When we begin to discipline our minds to thanking God and praising Him immediately after something good happens, then we begin to recognize all the ways in which God was working. So let that be our challenge for the week. Let's discipline ourselves to thank God immediately after a good thing happens. Because James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. So let's start giving Him the praise that He so rightly deserves. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.